Anita, how's your mental health? <laughs> Questionable <laughs> at all times. You know this. Yeah. How's the mental health of your children? Um, also a little bit tricky. Can I tell you my experience in trying to find therapists for myself and my kids, Mel? Yes, please. Okay. This is how it goes. You ask around your friends and your family for a referral for somebody who's nearby. You finally find somebody who sounds like they might work for your family. You give them a call and you find out that A, they're not accepting new patients or B, they have a huge wait list. So you start over again and you ask people if they know anybody who would be a good therapist and a good fit. Finally, you find one, you go and you meet with them and you figure out that you don't actually like them that much. But it's been so much work to find somebody who you can go to in your area that you're kind of stuck with them. Well, do you have any ideas for how to get around this? Um, I do, because guess what? I've actually had some therapists that I have found on my own, which involves what you're saying. Sometimes I remember one time I was like three hours in the bathtub on my phone looking through yeah. websites. I was such a prune at the end. But I have also had the experience with working with BetterHelp and it was like, I, I don't want to say too good to be true, but because it is true, but it's like amazing because I was matched with my therapist within 24 hours. And you didn't have to go through all of that other ridiculous process of trying to find somebody. And here's the cool thing too, is if that person didn't work out for you, you can just switch and say, and it's not like you're committing to another years long search for somebody who you're going to jive with. It's true. And I lucked out or maybe just BetterHelp is really good at matching people together because I never had to change my therapist. I loved her. Perfect fit for me. And I know that some of our friends have used BetterHelp and they've had to change therapists and boom, same day can change. Easy peasy. You can ghost your therapist. <laughs> Get a new one. I love this idea. BetterHelp is one of our sponsors. If you use our promo code, trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN, you get 10% off your first month and we totally recommend it. Yes. Get some therapy. That's <laughs> trybetterhelp.com slash WWDN. Uh, Mel. Uh, Nita. You are in psychological turmoil and I am in physical turmoil. So the two of oh, us put together are a fine sight to behold. What's wrong with you? I just woke up feeling sick, like sore throat, oh. runny nose, headache, blah, all that kind of stuff. I took a COVID test. It said I didn't have COVID, but who knows? I don't understand anything yeah. in the world. So Nice. Well, I don't have that, and I'm sorry for you. I have people spewing hatred at me, and I don't understand it so yeah that's I'm working that's no fun on my self-esteem i don't know if vitamin d helps with hatred do you think it does you should ask your mom if she has a tincture oh for that <laughs> so this week my mom had my sister hurt herself and my mom's like i have a poultice i made i'll put it on and then all of a sudden the next thing we know my mom's outside like has redone the whole herb garden thing and is out there for four hours because she wants to have more for poultices can, anyway. Can we just please not skip over the fact that to use the poultice, she made your sister chew up the leaf in her mouth and then apply yes. it to the owie? Yeah. Yes. I forgot about that part. Oh, my gosh. If somebody handed me a random leaf and was like, chew this up and stick it on your owie, I would be like, who, who are you? I know. <laughs> it's so funny. Well, I wish that there could be a poultice for my 
bleeding, stabbed heart, I know, the- but to no avail. But I've been still really good about my exercise, Anita. And even today, I was outside, like you said, for 47 minutes. Mm-hmm. I took the dog on a walk. But yeah, I've been keeping it up. And, and it's, I, Liz, this is for you. I know it sucks. Yeah. But I do think it helps. But it's like, man, I wish that it could help prevent bad things mm. or mean things. Why don't? Yeah, I don't know. I know I'm not making sense, but there's been a person that's been very unkind this week to me, and I don't know why. So, mm. just gonna keep exercising, exercise it away. Uh, tomorrow, <laughs> and- well, the day that this podcast comes out is the first day of school. So we've made it through the summer and school will be starting, but I always find myself getting really irritable around this time too. It's just like a lot of change, number one. And then it's also like a highlighting that Jason's gone kind of a time for me, but I'm also so excited for my kids to go to school. I have four different schedules this year. I just figured out because I have one in kindergarten, one in elementary school regular, one in junior high and one in high school. My brain is going to explode. I can't keep track of that many things. How can we get you a nanny? <laughs> I just need a millions of dollars. And you want an au pair because that's more high class than a nanny. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah. From Sweden. Constance, come be my au pair. I think Constance is a little busy. Plus, I know she probably has other things that she wants to be doing. Whatever. It's fine. Yeah, probably not being your au pair. But, <laughs> Constance, we want to visit you. I know. Of course. Absolutely. Anita, we rode bikes this week. We did. I had a fabulous time. I don't know how you felt about it. <laughs> I had a great fall. And then I had a gig that night and everything was fine. Oh, good. That was the first time that I had ridden this year because this year has just sucked for me like literally since january 1st because that's when my dad died and then had all these other losses and some hateful things that i'm still dealing with from some of those things so it's been a rough one for me Mm. but i'm glad we got out even though it's august and (laughs) i had fun yeah i love that trail it's so 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 beautiful even though their wildflowers are all dead by now so you missed out on that but next year we'll go before they're all dead okay Okay. okay, cool. Good plan. Cool, cool. So we're not feeling great, and that's going to be the extent of our blah, blah, but we're going to do our Patreon shout out. Mm-hmm. And then we have an awesome interview that we hope that you will all enjoy. So check out the Widow Wives Club on Facebook if you have not yet. Answer all the questions. Seriously, guys, we decline more than half of people because they just don't answer the questions. And it makes us look like we're big fat meanies. But we're not. We're just trying to protect the group. So please just answer the questions. Yes. And please read the questions. There's specifically question number three. Don't skip. Tell us. Don't skip it. And please read it. And email the address on there if you have questions. Don't just be mean to us. Here's here's another thing to keep in mind. We have moderators helping us to go through those requests and so mel and i might know you personally but we're not guaranteed to get to those requests first so no matter who you are you still need to answer the question so Ah. yes and keep in mind too that all of us that are helping are widows and so everybody has bandwidth 
that they're dealing with as far as what they can handle. So that's why we spread it out Mm -hmm. among many of us. And so we're doing our best. Thanks for your patience. Can I tell you a funny story real quick, Mel? Please, I need it. So I had the wildest dream that one of our Widow Wives Club members, her name's Karen Merrick. She's one of our (laughs) moderators. She murdered Michael Buble, you guys. But how she did it was she waited until he was in his butterfly form, which happens, I guess. And all you have to do to kill a butterfly, everybody knows this, is cover their eyes and then their head explodes. So she murdered Michael Buble and Karen Cornejo had to let us know that the Canadian government was seeking the death penalty for her (laughs) killing butterfly Michael Buble. But here's where it's crazy. So I, I sent her a message to tell her that and she said, wait, when did I murder him? Because I have tickets to see Michael Buble. <gasps> Premonition. I also I, love that Michael Buble is Canadian. And so this is a whole like Canadian on Canadian situation. And butterflies. Yeah. So there you go. I don't know what that means, but Karen, please don't murder butterfly Michael Buble. Well, or other Karen, can you just keep an eye on her? Thanks. <laughs> Okay, now we can do the Patreon shout out. If you guys don't know what Patreon is, Patreon is a platform where you can support creators. Our podcast is funded by donations, and this is one of the best ways that you can support if you would like. We have four different tiers starting at $5 a month. This helps us to be able to get the podcast up and going and stay up and going and get it out to those who need it. So to those who donate... Thank you so much on behalf of those who are not able to because you make a difference. So we are going to start with our shout out, which is what one of the perks that you get at the $10 level and up. And Anita is going to kick it off. What's a Michael Buble song? (laughs) Oh, he has all the free. Listen, everyone. Can I just say something? Michael Buble sings Frank Sinatra tunes. Now he kind of, you know, has his own. But when he first got into the limelight he was singing frank sinatra stuff he was even singing frank sinatra count basie big band arrangement so everybody thinks that he's this original guy and it's not true that's my musician psa for the day but he's you could basically quote a frank sinatra tune and it would be michael he Lube. still doesn't deserve he, to get murdered just fyi we don't know that no, we don't know what he's done but he deserves to get murdered oh yeah that's true okay nobody nobody okay okay Anyway, widow on a podcast, you know how I feel. Sad. (laughs) Widow on a podcast, you know how I feel. Okay, I have a cold. Uh, Yes, there you go. Constance Dahlbeck. David Kelly, back in England. Don Satterway. Emily Wesenberg. Is it Wesenberg? Tell us how to say that. And hello. Gail Bell. Ivan the Meisner. Cat. Krista Waite. Maya Glasser. Our friend Neil Hooper. Sam Finlayson. Amber Vela. Amy Hartman Martell. Amy Neal. Ashley Hahn. Barbara Schneeberger. Brandy Younger. Brittany Pedro. Chris Steffen. Christina Shiflett. Cindy Wilkerson. Danielle Katterberg. Not a Debbie Downer. Dennis Brazo. Jean Marie Massey. Jenny Taylor, Jennifer Beale, Jennifer Brown, Jenny Wang, Jesse Johnson, Carol Schultz, Kelly Ford, Kirsten Stromberg Clausen, Lara Aguirre Penner, Lauren Old, Luke Clausen, 
Marie Hoffman, Mary Catherine Anderson, Patricia Wiest, Rachel Barbosa, Sarah Morris, Simone Fu. Hello, Simone. Welcome. You cute little meerkat. You <laughs> meerkat with muscle abs. <laughs> Sunshine Haven. Sylvia Plantain Leaf Shore. <laughs> That's what it was. Taylor Snyder. Karen Cornejo. Anna Tracy. Christina Scambato. Christine Anderson. Cindy Raynaud. Connie Remich. Don Barber. Debbie Fells. Deborah Westwood. Diana Becker. Emily Toledo. Eric Vandermulen. Aaron Posick. Gabe Lozano. Gia Benoit. Gina Haas. Ian Cini. Ileana Bell. My friend Jackie. Your mom, Jane. Another secret patron. Jennifer Davis, Jenny Armstrong, Jenny Barrow, Jocelyn Milo, Julie Stevenson, Karina Jacobo, Kathy Murray, Katie Getz, Katie Radcliffe, Kara Scara, Kevin Ferry, Chris Morgan, Laura Keeley, Lindsay uh, Konopka. Always get it. I feel like you had a long run. Yeah, but you know what? I always get to say Lori Farrington. So. <laughs> Marjorie Lewis. Marianne Hammond. Mary McGowan. Megan Montague. Melissa Bowers. Melissa Hancock. Our straight A graduate, Missy Schubert. Naomi Brown. Hi, Naomi. We already said hi, didn't we? Like three times. Yeah, probably. Peter Rukavina. Rebecca Olamacher. Becky Zeba. Robin Flam. Sarah Kennedy. Stacey Saywert, Tammy Taravest, Tara Wallace, Trenton Thompson, my dog park buddy tomorrow, aka today, Valerie Packer. And finally, we have psychological distress Wendy and Judy Malkin. Thank you so much to everybody who supports us through Patreon. It really does help us to keep the podcast going so we can get it to all the people, whether or not they support us. Yeah. All right. It's time, Anita. Let's do it. I'm Anita. I'm Mel. We are two young widows, and we are trying to figure out and help you figure out widow we do now. Mel, I'm excited because this day has been long awaited. I know. And this guy just told me that he's going to give us the secrets to life. And how to keep going forward through life when you're 40, but you feel like you're 127 because of your life experience. So I'm all ears. Did he first tell you you had to pay three installments of 19.99, and it was like cash on delivery or no? I think at first it's like a $5,000 payment and then you have a downline. It's actually a cult. <laughs> yes. All right, Mel, who are we talking to? We are talking to the lovely and talented and very bearded Matt, how do you say your last name? Logalin? Uh, close. It's Loglin. It's a long O. Um, and I'll just say that you're right about only one of those things. I'm heavily bearded. The rest of that is like definitely a falsehood. So Okay. And I couldn't even get your name right. Matt Logalin. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's perfect. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, Matt, how long have you been growing that beard? I, the last time I shaved it was when my first child was about a year old. I did it um, as a, like a way to raise some money for a charity. And uh, and I have not done it since because I you don't want to know what's underneath this. It's like I have like seven chins, I think. It's just like this gives the illusion of a nice, big, strong jawline. But I like I look like a child and I have like 12 chins. So it's um, it's 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 definitely serving its purpose. 
Okay, <laughs> excellent. Now, Matt, we met you at Camp Widow. You were actually the Fancy Pants keynote speaker, so we had to wait until you were in a state um, of disarmament to jump and ask if you would be on our podcast, and you were like, okay, and then maybe you didn't remember it, but then we followed up with an email, and here we are. Yeah, I, I do remember it. I mean, it's... um. I think the 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 falsehood again is that I'm a fancy uh, anything. I'm like the least fancy person you'll ever meet, probably. Um, I've just been put into some weird positions, and so um, as I think I told you the day that we met, I have a hard time saying no to things. And so when people ask me to do things, like for instance, um, be a keynote speaker, I say yes to it, and um, and I say yes to podcasts, and I say yes to everything pretty much because I I have a family that doesn't like to let me talk to them, and so I this is how I get my therapy as I talk to you guys, and I get to say things that my family just doesn't want to hear anymore. So this is really it's actually it's really helpful for me. So thank you very much for having me. I have to attest that I know that Matt has an amazing sneaker collection because just in the few short days that we saw him, he had the coolest sneakers each day. Oh, thank you. I I have lots of collections and, and some of them are really cool and like things I would like tell people about. And then there's other things that like my wife right now is like, don't tell people about this because the earwax collection. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll just tell you, I have a, um, I literally have like a collection of a bus of Karl Marx, um, you know, the, <laughs> the great philosopher. I could, I could turn my computer around. Well, I don't know if I can, I'll send you a photo, but I have like, <laughs> I have like tens, if not uh, uh, close to a hundred busts of Karl Marx in my home. And I bear a striking resemblance to him. I would like to say, I like to I like to think anyway. So I either get with this beard, people either think I'm, I'm somebody who stormed the Capitol, which I am definitely on the opposite <laughs> end of the political spectrum if you want to talk politics, or they think if they're really highly educated uh, and a leftist like I am, they think I'm Karl Marx because I've got this giant like philosopher's beard, and that's what I'm going for, not insurrectionist, you know. So I love that you just called it the philosopher's beard, the yes. philosopher's beard. Like that was the first Harry Potter book, but then they changed it. Th- they did. They couldn't get permission for me to get to use the trademark. Yeah, you know, so. it's it's the installment of Harry Potter, the widower. <laughs> That's right. That's right. First one. Sad. Matt, where do you live? I live just outside of Los Angeles, about like 10 minutes outside of L.A. in a place called La Cañada Flintridge. It's fancy. It's got three words in it. Yeah, that did sound fancy. And what do you do for a living? What is your life? <laughs> My life is weird. Um, I'm retired. Basically, I this is what, what I have to tell everybody. I'm retired. I, I I am truly I'm a homemaker. Like when I fill out any documentation, I put in homemaker because I no longer and we'll get into this. I'm sure I don't put widowed anymore. And so like I have to like make the people at the doctor's offices and things like that ask questions about me. And so I always put in homemaker because that's not something anybody said since like the fifties of the last century. So it's, it's something that I say, but I, but truly I'm, I'm, I have two younger kids now. I've got a third child that's uh, 14 and I do spend some time with the kids during the day, but now I have a nanny as well. So I'm like Wait. kind of a project this is not fair you're a house husband with a nanny yes mary poppins and here's why i am my (laughs) where we bought this house a couple years ago and we're about to tear the whole thing apart and so i am essentially like a a project manager on like a series of architectural projects that are about to be happening both inside and outside my home so that's the long answer is to say that the short answer is i'm a homemaker stay-at-home dad you know taxi driver with occasional help from a nanny that takes my kids out. And and really the reason I have that is because, and you guys probably have this experience too, but like during COVID, we had 
two, we had like a, we had a baby that was one years old, one year old when COVID struck. And then we had another one in the middle of it and they had no socialization for most of that time. And so we had a nanny at the playground who would take the kids to the playground. And she had like a network of nannies that she worked with and a network of children that those sort of pre-existing. So we just basically bought friends for my kids because we didn't know how else to like make them for them. We were in a new community, didn't know anybody. And on top of it, COVID was messing with things. So. Um. Sometimes we assume that unless we had a huge life insurance payout, we don't really need to know anything about investments or even finances. But guess what? A little knowledge of finances is critical for all of us. Maybe your partner was in charge of that stuff, and now you find yourself making all the decisions. Maybe you're mad about that. Maybe I am. Nicole from the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast is here to help. She tackles financial literacy by telling the stories of women and widows and finance experts and shares the lessons they've learned as certified financial planners. Whether you know a lot and feel confident in your financial decisions or feel unsure about all of that stuff, there is more to learn. Listen and subscribe to the He's Gone But The Money's Not podcast on all podcast platforms. This ad was paid for by Rock House Financial and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. I'm just over here feeling jealous of Matt's life right now for a minute. I'll move in for a little bit and meet my children and me and you'll you'll hate you'll hate my life, I promise. <laughs> no Matt. No Matt. You meet Bust. me and my children. <laughs> and then you'll know. <laughs> I can't wait. We should do like a like a like a child swap thing like you see with that wife swap show. Oh yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> I, I will can I please watch the live stream? I, it'll be great. It'll be great. I have three little boys who are 12, 9, and 5, and then I have a 15-year-old daughter. So it's like a tornado, a whirlwind in the house all the time. That sounds like it. Yeah, I was once a, a 12, 9, and 3-year-old boy, <laughs> uh, and uh, I remember those ages well and all the havoc I wreaked upon my family and my neighborhood. So, so Matt, let's get to why we know you. You mentioned that you... No longer check the widowed box, but that means you are still one of us. Will you tell us the story of what happened? Uh, yeah, so back in, and this seems like the Middle Ages now, but back in 2007, my wife, my my, my first wife, we found out she was pregnant. We were super excited. We were going to have this beautiful little baby. She suffered from a lot of like complications throughout the pregnancy. There's a lot more to be said. It's just a lot. But, but essentially, like she had a lot of problems with the pregnancy and we were just like, you know, super concerned about how our baby was going to turn out. And, you know, was she going to be healthy? Was she going to be even like, be like a viable like child when she like, was she going to survive essentially is what, you know, I think they say viable child, we're talking to a doctor, but that sounds so horrible. <laughs> that was a weird term, a viable child. Yeah. You know, it's like, what do you say situation? But anyway, we were really concerned about her health and just how things were going to turn out when she was born with all these complications. They did everything they could to kind of keep her inside as long as possible to make sure her lungs were developed and all that stuff. Um, as soon as she was born, she was whisked off the NICU and everybody was kind of like, you know, just hold your breath. We'll see how things go. Hopefully she's going to be okay. And that was our one main focus, right? Like my wife and I, that's all we talked about. It's all we thought about. And then about 27 hours after she gave birth, they, the nurses came in and said, let's go. We're going to take you. You're going to meet your daughter. And she stood up with my assistants and the nurses assistants. And she just told me that she felt lightheaded and she just collapsed. 
and she collapsed my arms and in the nurse's arms. And she was a very small person. She was four foot 11. She couldn't have weighed more than 120 pounds. Like she was just tiny. Right. And, and, but I've never felt weight like that in my entire life. You know, just, I, she just like, like she just dropped. And so we got her into the bed as quickly as we could. And, you know, there's all sorts of things happening in the background. There's codes being called and there's noises and screams and all sorts of stuff happening. And, you know, my mind just like, oh, it's just focused on her and trying to figure out what was going on. It seemed pretty obvious from the beginning that something bad had happened. I, I couldn't figure out what it would be. But within a few minutes, you know, they brought in all the doctors and nurses and things and got me out of the room. And, and, and I talked to one doctor or one nurse, and they said that they thought that maybe she had a blood clot that had gone into her lungs and pulmonary embolism, DVT, that kind of thing. And, and, and that's what it was. And so within a few minutes, she had died. And I... I didn't know what to do. Right. Because here I was, I was, I was 30 years old. She was my best friend. I've been dating her since high school. She was like literally my high school sweetheart. She was everything I didn't deserve in another human being. Like she was better than me. She was smarter than me. She was more beautiful than me. She was just everything in the world. And I wanted to do everything I could to keep this person in my life for the rest of my life. I, I would have done anything for her at any time. And in that very moment, I couldn't do anything to help her. And it just, it was just like devastating. And I didn't, I didn't know how to move forward, but I, I had to figure it out. Right. Because now I have this baby that's a day old, one day old, and I don't know what to do. And I don't even know at that point, how healthy my child's going to be like, is this going to be somebody that's going to need round the clock care for the rest of her life? We really didn't know at that point. And so I'm facing these two things, especially after you know, the the day before when we had just had the greatest moment of our life, right? We'd been so excited about this baby. We had been so focused on bringing her into the world, making her healthy and happy and all this stuff. And then to have that happy moment just followed, you know, one day later by just obviously the most devastating thing that can happen to someone, I think it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense in your mind, right? Like there's no way to make that make sense, no matter how rational you are. And I consider myself a, a, a rationalist of like the highest order, but your brain just still cannot you can't make sense of that. It just does not work at all. And that's where I found myself, you know, just a day after my, my daughter was born. It's like the highest of the highs and then the lowest of the lows. That was like Mount Everest and the Mariana Trench. <laughs> exactly. 24 hour period. Yeah, totally. And that's, and that's exactly how it felt. And I, I'm not prepared and I wasn't at that time, especially prepared to like figure out how to manage that. Like, how do you, how do you have a swing that 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 high and that low that quickly and it's it's not something that i think at the time especially i was like i i think i said to myself like in in my own head like i am not going to handle this well like i am not (laughs) this is not going to go well for us and i meant for me and for my daughter because i just truly didn't feel confident as a dad like you know i i think and it's it sounds kind of dumb because i think a lot of dads you know, sometimes they feel like they're not ready or they, they get like no credit for being like decent parents. And there are a lot of crappy dads out there, but like, I just feel like sometimes dads are conditioned to not feel like they can do this job. Whereas moms are like told you have to, and it's automatic and you've, you know, you just know how to do this. And so it's bad on both sides, but I feel like with dads and I, I felt this for sure, like I didn't know how to do it and I didn't think I'd be able to do it. And so facing a, a, a life without my wife, who again was more capable. She made more money than me. She did everything she did was better than me. It's like, 
our child lost the better parent. And I think I, I talked to so many widows and I feel like they, a lot of them feel the same way. I, I met maybe like one or two who are like, no, the, the better one, <laughs> the better one's still here. But most of the time, I think the feeling is, is that our partner, we chose this partner that we had because they were the ones that kind of like brought out the best in us and all of our deficiencies, right? Or they made us feel like we were capable human beings. And with her by my side, I knew I'd be a great dad, but without her, I was like, oh man, how am I going to do this? And, um, and, and the only way I could do it was like with her in mind and like trying to think of all the things I, I learned from her, even passively, just those sort of like lessons I learned from, from, from our life together, you know, I could use that. And then I could just like, think about her as I was trying to like do the best for our child. And I figured I can't really fail them. So how do you wrap your head around Mel and I both had sudden deaths of our husbands too. And I found it so difficult to wrap my head around somebody being there and then just not being there. And I was like, how, how your brain just can't like figure that out because they're right here and then they're not here anymore and they don't exist anymore. And it's like the most bizarre thing to try and rearrange your brain to be able to conceptualize. It, it totally is. And I think, you know, we joked about like religion at the beginning of this, I think, but, but that's something I think it is for a lot of people's so important. I personally am not religious. I, I am, I'm about as like not religious as anybody could possibly be, you know, again, as a, as a, <laughs> I just, I just never, I grew up Catholic. It's not something that I relied upon. And, and I think what's so important for so many people, and this is why I don't like outright hate religion, because I think religion helps people so often handle that part of how do you figure out how to tell your mind, like what happened there, right? Like a concept of heaven helps everybody feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to see this person again. Um, it gives you some hope and it helps to kind of explain away these situations. Whereas for somebody like me, I have this very rational like thought process about like, okay, like she was here, she's dead. Now what do I do? Because I was trying to solve a problem and I couldn't necessarily make sense of what was going on, but I knew in my brain I had to, because I didn't have another way. I didn't have any you know, folklore. I didn't have any religion. I didn't have anything that helped me process that part of it. And honestly, I wish I did. I mean, it's in those moments that were like, you know, I met a lot of people after this happened just in various places in my life. And a lot of them were always like, like, did you, did you become more religious after this? And I was like, well, I wasn't religious before, but I definitely became less religious. So like, I went from like negative, like 20 to like negative, like thousand. And and that's, again, it's not because I think religion's bad. It's just for me, I don't have, I don't have the ability to use that to conceptualize what's gone on in my life. I just think about it from a rational perspective and that it, it, it doesn't help in the situation we just discussed, but in, in terms of like how I moved forward with my child and with my life, it made me feel a little bit better about decisions I made. Like, you know, eventually meeting somebody and getting married I didn't feel like my wife was like watching everything I was doing and like, like, no, nah, that's not the one for you or that's the best one for you or whatever. It was, it, it helped me kind of just like think about how I think she would have felt about things. And that guided me in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you didn't get more religious. You just got more Karl Marx statues. I did. I did. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I read a lot more about philosophy. I read a lot more about, you know, just like rational thought, I guess. And again, not to belittle anybody or religion or anything. I, I don't intend to do that. It's just that I definitely swung in a different way. And, and yeah, that's, that's where I ended up. So obviously your child survived. Yes. And where did you go from there? Well, she spent uh, like, I think it was like two weeks in the NICU. 
And that whole time they were doing everything they could to, again, kind of make her stronger and, and get her home with me. You know, and a lot of my concerns and my, my fear about being a dad were also like, she wasn't nine months old yet. Like I, th- I thought I had a couple more, like, um, like basically a month and a half to kind of figure this out, you know? And of course, in a month and a half, I was going to know everything. I was going to be the best dad, no matter what happened with my wife especially if she was there. And by the time we hit nine months, I would have been the best dad, all the secrets unlocked. But, you know, with my wife gone and my baby born and in the NICU, I was like literally just trying to figure out like, is she going to be okay? I mean, that that was my only focus. Uh, In the meantime, you know, my dad was out staying with me and my brother came out to stay with me and my in-laws were in and out of the house and stuff. And my dad being my dad, he decided that he was like, well, you need new windows. So he took all the windows out of my house and like, you know, I, I'm like, I'm trying to make sure that this is like a pristine environment, you know, where like, <laughs> there's no sounds and there's no, there's no dust or anything. And then my dad's tearing out my windows. And then the hospital is kind of like, all right, well, it's been two weeks. We're ready to let you take your daughter home. And I was like, okay, cool. I need like, I need like a day or two more. And they're like, they, they literally said something to me to the effect of like, you know, the most dangerous place for a baby is in the hospital. And I was like, wait, what? Like, this, this doesn't make sense to me. This doesn't track with what you've been telling me for the last like two weeks. <laughs> but basically it was like just time to bring her home. And, and, and I, I just was like, okay, I guess I'm now I got to take her back to this house that I'd purchased with my wife that I didn't know if I'd necessarily even be able to step, set foot back into. I'd been in and out during the day, but I'd been sleeping at the hospital in a room just kind of like near my daughter. So I could go feed her in the middle of the night and all that stuff. But yeah, you know, what I found out was that like, she was super duper strong and she was really healthy. And all of those fears that we had pretty early on kind of just disappeared, you know, and I got to bring her home and I was scared to death and I didn't know what I was going to do. And she still weighed when she was born, she weighed, she was like under four pounds and she was just above that when she came home because she had to get back to her birth weight. And uh, so I'm here with this fragile, tiny little baby. And I'm, you know, just kind of this hand fisted idiot. And, but you figure it out, right? Like any time, like, I think like cave people, like if you put like a, a crying baby in front of them, they'd figure, I don't think they like spiked these babies very often. They would actually like, cause they, they were concerned about them. And like, I feel like anybody on earth, if they found a crying baby somewhere, would figure out how to take care of it. You know, it's just the same thing with like a puppy. You see a puppy on the side of the road, you pick it up, like you, your instinct, and it's not a motherly instinct. It's not a fatherly it's instinct. To it's give just it a, some Skittles. It's a, Yeah, exactly. Give yeah. it some Skittles and a bunch of matches and see what happens, right? Like that's what I do with my kids too. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's, I, I just feel like we get a lot of like, I think old parents in general, especially widowed parents, I think are so concerned about like, are we doing things right? Are we doing things wrong? Are we going to screw these kids up? And the answer is, no, the kids screw themselves up. Like we're perfect and we're like the best. And like our parenting is amazing. It's all, again, this is my rational side coming out. It's free will. No matter what you do for your children, no matter what you try to instill in them, whatever you try to do, if they do something horrible, it's their fault. If they do something good. I like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is what I learned from my mom. My mom takes credit for all the good things I've ever done. She never takes credit for the bad things my brother did. Okay. I was a perfect kid, so I never did anything wrong. Right. And I, and I started, like, as I've been raising my kid, uh, truthfully, the way I feel about it is that, like, I don't take credit for the good, but I take credit for all the bad. Anything that she does that's wrong, I take credit for that because I'm, I'm truly not, like, the greatest dad in the world. I say this as a joke, but I'm, I'm still learning. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, but when she does well in school, I can actually give credit to her mom because her mom was a smart person. She inherited that from her. I, I don't even know if I know how to read yet. You know, it's things like that, that, like, I, I want to give the credit somewhere else and I want to give her the credit because she does all that work. And so 
I mean, I joke about it a lot, but, but it's just amazing to see like how resilient kids are. And I feel like as parents from the beginning, widowed or not, you just feel like you're going to screw your kids up and you're so worried about it. And it's just like, yeah, it'll, it'll be figured out one way or another. Hopefully they're good. Can we just take a moment and have a moment of silence for the fathers in our lives who come over during crises, crisis, crises, crises, and pull out the windows. My dad was fixing holes in my walls. Like I have to do something like something has to be done. <laughs> he did this like right after your husband died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, oh, there's holes in the walls and he left me to paint them. So they're still just like bare sheetrock because that was not high on my priority. And Mel knows my dad. So she's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. very on brand. Yeah. <laughs> very I mean, helpful. It, that's the thing. It's like, and I, I'm sure you guys have had like countless conversations about that. And it's like, people are so nice. and They want to do so much to help you. And sometimes like even my dad, who I love to death, I'm like, man, like, why don't you come out in like three months? Like, I'll plan a trip. I'll go somewhere with the, with my baby. Like, we'll go do something cool. You could fix the windows then. Like, I, I'm literally still, like, it hasn't been two weeks since my wife died. I don't know, like, would she be okay with me doing this to the house? Like, we bought this house together. Like, would she think it was okay that I'm doing? I have all this stuff going through my mind. And in the meantime, my whole family is just in there destroying my home. And I don't know if they're going to get it put back together. Like, and again, and there is a timeline. I've got to bring this baby home at some point. Like she can't stay there in the hospital for a year or even a month. It turns out. Yeah. Cause it's super dangerous in the hospital. Everybody knows that. Don't put kids in the hospital. That's, baby. that's what yeah. they told me basically. So, um, you know, it was just one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's really helpful. And I love it, but can we do it another time? So you guys figured it out. Yep. Figured it out you together. Made your way. You have a newborn and then you have a toddler and you just like, it's almost like, is it served up to you? You figure out what you need to do. And a lot of the things don't happen how you thought they were going to happen. I mean, this is like parenting in general. Yeah. Just, you know, solo parenting, but you didn't have the person to bounce ideas off of. So it was like, eh, what are we going to do? We're going to figure it out. And how did you do it? I, I winged it mostly. A lot of it I winged. But I, I think, you know, again, I was I was really like thoughtful about the person that I'd been with, like this woman that I'd married, this person I'd spent most of my life with at that point you know, I, I had these lessons that she imparted on me, like ways that her parents handled things, which is what you do with that, that, that person you marry, that person you fall in love with, the person you like start a family with, like you have these conversations about like parenting styles and like, what would you do in this situation? All that. We didn't have those conversations like directly, but I got to have, I got to hear how her parents handled like sugar in the house and lying and all that kind of stuff. And I'm still good friends with their family and, you know, they're my family. I'm going to a family wedding with them this weekend, but it's so nice to be able to look back at my time with her and think like, okay, she was telling me this story and this is what she would have done because that's how she was raised. And I would mix it my parenting style. So early on and to this day, uh, when my child brings home great grades or bad grades or whatever, like that's how we kind of manage it. It's just because I think about how she would do it. But I also relied like a lot on, and this is again, 2008, I relied on like the internet. I had a blog and <laughs> as a man writing a blog about my feelings I'm very embarrassed about it a lot of times, but what it did was it it created a forum for a bunch of women to tell me what I was doing wrong. And so I had like, you know, an, uh, it wasn't an intimate or sexual relationship, but I was like in a relationship with like thousands of women who were telling me how to fix things or how to not fix things or that I'd done something wrong or just offer encouragement and it's clearly not the same as like having your partner around, but it was really helpful in those moments where like in the middle of the night, I don't know how to handle a certain situation, whether it's, you know, colic or whatever it might be. 
like to have like somebody I could put a, I could put something quickly up on my blog. And even if it was three in the morning, like 10 people would be like, Oh, well, this is how I handled it or whatever. So, so that like, I don't want to discount that help because those people really got me through and better than most of my friends. Cause my friends are all like degenerates, you know, like none of them, especially back then had like, none of them had children. Um, most of them were not like in serious relationships. And so it, these are not the kind of people that you call for advice on children, let alone like allow them to like be with your children for like a couple of hours. Cause yeah, they'll be drinking beer out of like a, a sippy cup or something and you don't it's not cool. So, um, so, so yeah, I mean, I had to rely on strangers for a lot of this stuff. It was, it was a really weird and kind of very sort of like 2008 moment that I don't think exists in the same way anymore. Like I think, you know, there's Instagram and there's all those like sort of social elements to like, you know, helping raise children and stuff, but like, I, I know blogs were such a weird and like strange moment in that particular time in the world. And I'm thankful that, that I had that help because it was, um, yeah, I mean, there's, it's hard not to question yourself, uh, especially when you're doing this alone and you don't have somebody that's right there to bounce ideas off of or somebody there to like share the highs and the lows. And I think for me, that was like the most difficult part, I guess, was like not having my wife there to like talk about the happy stuff. Like when the kid rolls over the, for the first time, you know, they're, they're basically just blobs for the first several months of their life. And then they do this thing and they roll over and you're like, it's mind blowing. Like if, if you're listening to this and you're not a parent and you haven't seen your own child roll over, like, it's like, it'll just, it'll just change your whole relationship with the, with the, the earth. I swear to God, it's like the craziest thing in the world to see this thing that can't do anything, just flip. And, and that's just thing that can't do anything. Yeah. It can't, they don't do it. They just eat and they drink and they poop and they just lay there and they just cry sometimes. And then they smile, they smile. And that's amazing. And those are the things that I think I really struggled with because I, you know, it's one thing to like have hard moments and stuff like that, but it's like in the midst of being widowed and all this stuff, every moment was hard, but then I'd get these like little spikes of joy, just like these little moments where I was like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. And then the couch is empty next to me and there's nobody to say that to. And it's like, you can't call up your own mother that much and be like, she rolled over and they're like, cool. Like, they get excited and all that stuff, but it's not the same, right? It's not the same as having the person you, you like decided to start a life with. They're not there and you can't share those moments of joy. And that's where I really like struggled the most. I think it wasn't, it wasn't even the hard parts. It was the, the easy parts, the fun parts that I struggle with the most because of that kind of stuff. I have a question. My uncle became a widower after his wife had given birth. And a lot of people, I think, were either, I don't know if they said it to his face, but you know, the chatter goes behind the back that, well, he needs to find a wife to take care of the kids. Did people say that to you or what were what was that kind of situation like for you? Yes. A lot of people said that to me. I think a lot of people, again, kind of don't give dads a lot of credit. And, and so the idea here basically is that like, everyone, every kid needs a mom, right? Because dads don't have a quote motherly instinct. And so like me being related to this child by blood, loving this child, having gone through, you know, watching her be born and having her mom die the next day that I wasn't somehow emotionally connected to this little being didn't make sense to me. Right. And that some other random person, just because you know, she had a uterus meant that she would be more connected to my child or would help me kind of get through this. So I, I think, you know, there's that idea, right? And I think it's not necessarily exclusive to men. I think women get this all the time too, right? Like, well, who's going to throw a football with your kid? It's like, well, my kid doesn't even like football. Like, leave me alone. 
You know, my kid is actually into ballet and he doesn't want to throw a ball around. Like just, it gets very gendered. And I think that's, what's kind of annoying about it. Right. Like, cause there I I've met people in my life whose moms were terrible parents and they have no relationship with their moms yet their dads were the ones that helped raise them and really kind of gave them the, the, the kind of like way to move forward. So yeah, it's a, it's a societal expectation. I think that if a man's wife dies, that he's not going to be able to handle it. And I think in times past, I heard from a lot of older men that I knew who were either like the, the child of a widower uh, or had been, you know, just new people in their community who like, as soon as the mom died, the kids were given to somebody else. They were given to another family member. And I know like more than one person that had that happen. And it was just like my, in fact, my wife's, your great uncle. Yeah. Her great uncle. He had that happen. His, his mom died and they were just like, you will not be able to handle this. They said to his dad. And so they gave him to like another like set of parents. I did not know this was an option, guys. What? Yeah. It, I, I mean, yeah, something to consider like on a random Saturday when they won't listen. <laughs> but 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 it's it is something that's like it, that's crazy to me. It, it, and, and to think that like, you know, you couldn't handle it. It goes back to what I was saying before in terms of like like when you when you see something that's in need, a, a little baby, a puppy, or whatever, like your human instinct kicks in. It's not a motherly thing, it's not a fatherly thing. Like you're just there trying to make sure that this thing is gonna be okay, this baby's gonna be okay, this dog's gonna be okay. And I just feel like when you have those, like there's even more attachments knowing that this is your baby and all that. Like I would have done just as I would have done anything for my wife. And I did do everything I possibly could for her, her, our entire time together. The same thing for my child. I would do anything right now. I would do anything for her last week. I would do anything for her any moment of my life. That's what I would do because that's who I am. And that's what I care about. That's, I mean, I just, I just love my kids so much. So it's, I mean, it's, that's that kind of stuff that happens sometimes. It's the same thing where like, I, I watched it happen a lot. I used to travel a lot with, with my, I haven't even said her name. Her name is Maddie. Jesus. Maddie, my oldest, who's 14. Early on, I used to travel with her a lot. We would just get on airplanes because I, I had like leave from my job at the time. And I would just travel. We'd go to Minnesota to see friends. We'd go to New York and meet people and hang out and do all this stuff. And I would get on the plane with a baby. And every time, and this happened every time somebody, a flight attendant, somebody would be like, Oh, can I help you with your bags? Or can I, can I hold your baby? And is very nice. I'm fully capable. I can handle it. Yet you'd see a mom getting on the plane with like three kids in tow, you know, stroller, suitcase, all this stuff. And nobody's because the expectation again is that moms do this. This is what they do. They handle it. Whereas dads are kind of like these people that are just like, you know, they, they don't have any fingers and they can't do anything. So they just keep punching themselves in the face. And that's not how it works. Right. And at the same time, I used to get these questions and, I, and tell me if you guys get the, the same things, but people always would ask me when I was out with my kid, like, you know, just be at target and they'd be like, where's her mom? It's like, are you serious? Like, you're going to ask me this question. And so I used to like, I would, I would kind of just blow it off a lot of times. I'd be like, Oh no, she's just not here or whatever. You know, she's at work or whatever. She's not. And present. then I just got, I got so sick of it that I just like, I had what I called like a conversation ender. And I was just like, she's dead. And that was it. And the conversation was over and they walked their way and I went mine and they didn't know if it was true or not because they didn't, they were so disarmed by the fact that I said that, that they couldn't, they couldn't respond. And so I realized at a certain point that for, for a long time, I was giving them answers that made them feel better and it was hurting me. And then I realized at a certain point, like I need to take care of myself. And so I started giving them answers that maybe didn't hurt them, but definitely shocked them. And it allowed me to kind of like, like feel okay about what my present condition was, which was I was widowed. Like, this is my life. You don't get to ask me 
why I'm at the grocery store by myself with my kid because my wife died. Like, that's what happened, dude. Like, sorry, quit asking me questions, you know? I actually use that same kind of excuse because I don't have kids. Yeah. And so when somebody sees me with a kid, they're like, oh, is that your son? And I'm like, no, my husband died and we didn't have any. <laughs> and they're like, whoop. And I'm just yep. like, sometimes the shocking answer is the best answer to get out of the situation. See I mean, ya. listen, you, you've got you've got places to be, you got things to do, all this stuff. And some person is just stopping you to ask these questions that are, frankly, none of their business. And they're not really like a question of concern. They're not asking because like I, I, like I left my child on the ground somewhere and I wasn't capable of picking her up. It was just literally, it was just like rude, like intrusions into my life about like, well, you look like a guy that lives on the streets. Why are you here? And where's the person that belongs to that child? Because you clearly aren't her father. You know what I mean? Like, it was just that kind of like judgment that I felt because I don't look like, I'm not like a business guy. You know what I mean? Like, I don't look like a guy who just like, especially with a baby that weighed at the time, you know, like I said, just above four pounds. I'm taking this baby out to Target because nobody else is buying me diapers. Like, it does probably look weird. But at the same time, like it's not something that should be asked, right? Like that's not a question that you want to, it's just like, if you see somebody with a little bump in their, in their shirt, you don't ask them if they're pregnant, don't do that stuff. And you don't ask somebody where their partner is because maybe they don't have one. There's a lot of people out there that have kids and make a decision of kids without a partner involved. Like that's just nothing you do. So Matt, did people ever ask if you were pregnant? Get that I mean, all the that time. Like kind of a sore subject for you so i listen it's happened more than once i'm gonna tell you um i put on a little weight during the pandemic and so it's just it's a question i get so matt maddie never got to know her mom and that's got to be heartbreaking yeah for you because i mean obviously you loved her and you wanted them to have a relationship how did you and did you try to keep her mom part of her life i mean i i did it like a million ways. I mean, I think the the primary one is to talk about her a lot. We talk about her all the time. I still do. I talked about her back then. I, I talked about her like the minute I went into the room after her mom died, I was talking to her about her mom. I know she couldn't understand it. I know she couldn't, you know, but I, I wanted to figure out a way to normalize the situation because this was our life now. Like we were not going to be able to hide from this. We we're not going to be able to deny, deny that this happened. No matter what happened in our future, we couldn't say this is what happened to us. You know what I mean? And so I, I just made it a point to talk about her all the time. I made it a point to surround ourselves with the people that meant the most to her mom while she was alive. And that's her family, you know? Um, my wife's parents are as big a part of my life or probably honestly a bigger part of my life than they were when I was married to her. And that's a testament to the fact that like, we really do care about one each one another. We care about Maddie's relationship with them. We, we care about how they're connected to this child and that, that, that main connection is gone, but we've maintained it throughout. And so like this weekend, as I mentioned earlier, like we're going to a wedding. My my late wife's sister is getting married. She and her wife are they were technically already married, but they're having a big wedding party this this week. And I'm a part of this wedding party. Maddie's a part of this wedding party. We're jumping ahead a little bit. I'm remarried. I have two new kids. We're all a part of the wedding party. The five of us together are part of this wedding party. And I, I think that has been such a gift to all of us. You know what I mean? Like the, the fact that we have come together and become closer over time has made it easier to keep my wife's memory alive. Because when I do, cause I only knew her from 18 to 30, right. That's, that's the time I had with her, but there's that whole period between 
you know, when she was born and when she hit, you know, when I met her when she was 18, that I don't know about. And I don't have the ability to fill in those blanks. And even though we were together from 18 to 30, I wasn't at college with her all the time. So I can't fill in those blanks. So, you know, we've lost some touch over time, but like, you know, I, for a long time, I was keeping her friends as part of our life, um, you know, and that was such an important thing too, because they can fill in the blanks for these things that I can't. And so the biggest thing for me too, again, is just like not making this a taboo subject. I know other people who've like really had a hard time discussing their partner and sharing these stories and making them a, a sort of a present part of their everyday life. And they don't, and I think the children suffer for that. And I'm not, I'm no therapist. I can't tell you if this is the right thing to do, but for me, it's been so helpful because Maddie can ask me questions about her mom at any time. And she can ask her grandparents questions. She can ask her auntie questions about this. She can ask my family questions about her mom. And she gets these amazingly weird answers from everybody because memories fade and they change and everybody has their own version of things. But it's so cool because that family folklore that I think that you you think you're going to miss out on can continue if you do have that relationship with your in-laws. And thankfully we do. So That's really great. And, and great that Maddie can know her mom through her mom's family. Yeah, I, I find it to be such an important part of our, our relationship together. And it's it's just, it's incredible to like have that. And I'm so very thankful for that. And I mean, I've got a great family too. I love my family, but they kind of have to love me no matter what, you know what I mean? Like this is, <laughs> I'm, I'm theirs. I belong to them. If I like run out of money, I got to call them. <laughs> but, but your in-laws, especially after a situation like this, after your partner dies, they have a choice and they don't have to be a part of your life. And if they didn't like you from the beginning, it's a pretty easy cut to make, right? And if you don't have children, it's a little bit easier. Maybe if you have kids, it's like, well, then you lose access to these kids. And, and I've seen it happen lots of times. I know a lot of widowed folks that I've met over the last, you know, 14 years whose in-laws have completely cut them off and don't want anything to do with them or the kids. And I just, I think that's like just such a short-sighted way of handling a situation, you know? It's really hard. So I'm curious, you said you're remarried. Did you consciously start dating again? And, or did it kind of fall into your lap? Or were you just knocked out and unconscious and someone like you woke up and now you're dating somebody? Well, that's kind of how it felt. And I, I think you probably can like, I don't know if you, you've all started dating, but like, that's how it felt it was like, it was an unconscious thing for me where like, it just happened suddenly. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't like, it was, I, I thought there'd be like a day I'd be like, okay, it's been two years and I'm ready to start dating, you know, like like a, a page would turn and like the sun would be out there's rainbows and unicorns and stuff and i just thought like there would be some signal to me that it was time and what it turned out to be was i think it was like the same as it was when i was like in high school i was maybe interested but like there was no clear sign that it was time to start like dating somebody i just like was at a park someday and there was like this girl that i thought was cool and we started talking and then we held hands in the park it's kind of similar, like as an adult. And I, I got in before like dating apps. So I didn't have that kind of like weirdness, but I had, um, you know, because of my blog, I had, I, I had a lot of people um, who, who I, sounds, I never want to say this because it sounds like such a crappy thing to say, but like, I, I just knew a lot of people and it was mostly women that were reading my blog and that who knew who I was. And so I got a lot of attention that way. And it's, it's not like the best attention necessarily, but you know, I dated, dated some folks uh, during that time, but the person I'm now married to, I did not meet in the same way. I just met on an airplane randomly, just on a flight one day. And, and I think that's the sort of serendipity. I think that that happens with 
a lot of relationships are the ones, at least in romantic comedies, like you turn a corner and you crash headlong into each other and you're like, oh my gosh, we're in love or whatever. That's not exactly how it happened, but we did meet on this plane and it, it was such a, a cool thing. And for me, it was like one of the first people I met who didn't know anything about me, who hadn't read my blog, hadn't read my book, hadn't heard anything about my life. They were just on a plane and they thought, oh, this guy's with a kid. He's not with a woman. He doesn't look that creepy. And if he's that if he's got if he's married still, then like everything, you know, then he'll just leave me alone. If he's not married, he's like he's he's okay. Like maybe we can like have a conversation. And so it 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 turned out pretty well. And and again, it wasn't something I was like necessarily looking for because I just got out of really bad relationship after all this. And uh it just kind of snuck up on me. But yeah, dating is weird and don't do it until you're fully ready to like have your life destroyed or your heart broken again because <laughs> right? it's terrible sometimes yes it's That's it's especially hard thing yeah it's not, like it can be i mean dating just sucks anyway and then after loss it's like okay well anything's gonna be a loss if it doesn't go well or a letdown or like ha- emotionally handling that seems just like a disaster makes i want to go crawl in a hole now no it's <laughs> yeah sorry I, this is how the effect i no, have on I'm people kidding. but but truly that i mean that's the thing it's like i you know and i know a lot of i've I've met so many widows and widowers over the last you know 14 years and it's it's just so interesting like i i I do see patterns where like it's you know not too long after uh the death of a a partner and and maybe there's a little bit of dating but like you fall pretty madly in love with somebody it's a very serious relationship and it implodes in some of like the most horrific ways you can possibly imagine and then it's like the next one that actually is like, it's like almost like that's like the practice relationship I've seen. And then the next one is the one that's like, oh, okay. Like this is more in line with expectations, you know? And 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 I can say it happened to me and I, I know a couple other people just like that. So I'm curious, the reason I was even asking this question is, did you have a conversation with your in-laws and how old was Maddie when you were going to start dating? Did you say like, by the way, I'm going to start dating. Or did you have that conversation or did you just let it kind of happen? And at what point in time did you tell them or let people know what was happening in your romantic life? I told my in-laws first. They're the first people I talked to about it. Before I talked to my friends, before I talked to my family, I think maybe the second because I the woman I was started dating knew first and then I told them. <laughs> but I, I wanted to make sure that they knew where, what where their place was in my life. You know what I mean? Because again, there are like expectations and there are weird sort of thoughts around what's going to happen after, you know, somebody dies. And then what happens in this next stage when they meet somebody? And then like, are we going to be just kind of like, you know, sent away because we're no longer part of that, that person's life. And for me, I wanted them to know that like, no matter what happens, no matter who I'm with, those people are going to have to accept my, my situation because I can't change it. I can't change the fact that my wife died. I can't change the fact that my in-laws are going to be a part of my life for Maddie's benefit, for my benefit, for their benefit, all that. And so I wanted them to know that first. And then I said, I want you to meet this person. And they, they were the first people to meet her as well before my own parents, before my own friends and stuff. And so that was important when it came to Maddie, she was, it was, this is before she turned two. And so there wasn't much, wasn't much to say. I was just like, Oh, there's this lady, she's got a cat or whatever. Like, you know, it's like, (laughs) that was the thing that she was like, you know, that's what she was most interested in. And so, you know, and that relationship didn't end well for, for me, uh, for Maddie, we'd been together for a couple of years and it just, it didn't, it didn't turn out the way that I think any of us had hoped. And so that was, that was the harder part. I think it was just like, you know, when you get to that, that stage where you're just like, oh my gosh, like I thought, 
I was going to be able to like find this happiness and this love again. And to be in a situation where like, it's just all like, it's just crumbling around you. And you're like, wow, like, how am I putting myself through this kind of devastation on top of the devastation I had, you know, just years earlier. And it seems daunting, but then again, like you get on an airplane one day and you meet some random woman and you're like, oh my gosh. And now I, I'm married to her and I have two more children. And one bit of advice, and I think I mentioned this at Camp Widow. So I don't want to sound like a broken record, but like my my first wife's name was Elizabeth and my second wife's name is Elizabeth. That happens so wow. much. I know. I'm telling you, I, it's weird. My friend who used to live across the street from me, his wife died. This was well after my wife died. His wife's name was Kate. He remarried a woman named Kate. And um, so I, like, it happens a lot. And so for me, you know, like, that was like such a, I hadn't thought about it because she goes by Lizzie. My, my late wife went by Liz and in my own brain, huge yeah, huge, huge, weirdly like very good at compartmentalizing things. And so those were two separate things in my brain. <laughs> and one time I went to Lizzie, my current wife's apartment, and I saw a piece of mail that was sitting on our counter. It said Elizabeth. And I was like, whoa, I was like, wait a second. <laughs> you know, like that was the first time that those things got connected in my brain, which is so weird. Cause you think like that's super naive and just dumb, but it, maybe I, I am an idiot for sure. But like, it was just, it was more just like, I put those, those things were too separate for me. And I think that's kind of what happens in these relationships, like after your partner dies, like you have to find a way, at least for me, I had to find a way to like compartmentalize these things. So, so is that what happened? You got on a plane and you met Lizzie and now you got married and you had two more kids. Did that happen? That's all that happened. It happened like in two weeks. Now, um, yeah, kind of. I mean, we met, we met, um, God, I don't even remember what it was, like 2015 or so. And yeah, it was amazing. Like I was on a plane with Maddie. We were going up to see my in-laws actually. And yeah, she sat down next to us and started having conversation with Maddie. And, um, and I didn't, I just got her name. I just like, I like heard her name and what she did for a living. And then it, I mentioned it to a friend of mine and he's like, oh yeah, I know somebody who works with her. And then like six months later, we didn't talk at all. I didn't, like I said, I didn't get her number. I didn't even know her last name, but six months later we started connecting like on the internet, we met on Instagram or something. And like, we just started hanging out and she like came over and we, we met. And then, you know, for a long time, I kind of kept her from Maddie in a lot of ways. I have a lot of like friends that just kind of pop in and out of my life. And so at first, when I did introduce Maddie to, to Lizzie, it was like, oh, here's my friend Lizzie. Like, she's cool. Like, we can go to the playground or whatever. And then over time, it was just, it felt, it felt appropriate to say like, this is somebody I really like. This is somebody that like is probably going to spend a lot of time with us. And we just kind of talked about it again. I've always treated Maddie like she's a little bit older than she is because my, I think my, and this is not unique to me, but my, like the theory I stick to with kids is that like, they're often like, we always see them as like really little, right. No matter what stage of life they're in, they're always going to be these little fragile little things. And sometimes we don't take the time to explain things to them on their level because we, we think we're talking like too highly to them or like, or there's still these little things that, that need help all the time. And so for me, I've always been like, I'm just going to tell you straight what happened. Like I, after her mom died, I went in and I said, your mom died. It's the two of us. We got to figure this out together. You know what I mean? And then I talked about her mom. And then in these moments, it was like, here's this person. I really like her. She's going to be a part of our life. You're going to see a lot of her. And I think that was such an important thing to say to Maddie because it wasn't, she didn't think then that this person was just going to disappear. And, and I, I don't know, I was just honest with her from kind of the beginning on that, you know? So Matt, you wrote a book. Tell us what the book is called. Oh, this is a complicated question. You have no idea. I wrote a book. It came out back in 2010. When it came out, the book was titled Two Kisses for Maddie. Okay. 
my book lived this very long life. I thought it was kind of just like, you know, at retirement's age or whatever, and just like living in an old folks home. But then I got approached to have a movie made about my, my life and my book, which is again, so weird. And when the movie came out, the, the title of the movie was called Fatherhood. And at that time, the publisher decided to change the title of the book to Fatherhood. So that's why it's complicated. It's got two different titles, but currently, if you're trying to find it, not that you have to buy it, but if you were looking to, to you know steal it from someplace, it's called Fatherhood. And it's got a picture of a guy that looks only like sort of generally like me. The biggest issue I think is that like he has abs and I don't. But there's this guy, uh, there's an actor named Kevin Hart, and he plays me in the movie. And so if you have Netflix, you can actually like watch Fatherhood right now. It's it's still there. And it's, yeah, my life is strange. <laughs> like, so many weird ways. I don't, I don't even know how to talk about this because I sound like a jerk when I talk about it. Because I'm like, oh, look at me. I have a movie about my life. But that's that's literally like the the least exciting thing in my life, I think. So. Well, we are always trying to see if Lifetime will make a movie, but they never want to make a movie of us. So that's kind of lame. So maybe Netflix will have to yeah, do. We but... could do like weekly installments because it just gets <laughs> worse for us. See, you should do that. I had, well, I had Lifetime actually was the first people that came. Actually, yeah, it was Lifetime first and then Hallmark came to me. Yeah. 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 And it was bad news let's just put it that way lifetime was a little bit better than hallmark hallmark was like just awful um they came to me like literally like a couple of months after my wife died they're like we want to make a movie or whatever and then i was kind of like i think i'll wait a little bit like i don't know if i want to do this it just felt weird to me and then they they uh around the, the time that i was getting a lot of press this is maybe like nine months after my wife died they called me up and they're like, we don't want you anymore. We found this widower that we read about in People Magazine. His wife died. And now there's like a whole bunch of women that are like donating their breast milk to feed his baby. Oh and they're like, gosh. we're going to make a story about his life instead. And I was like, and I, I, think, okay. I think I was supposed to be offended by that. And I was like, I was like, okay, cool. Have fun, guys. Like, and that was, it was like, Here's the problem with a Hallmark movie that they make two months after your wife yeah. died. The whole purpose of Hallmark is to make you feel good and to have everything wrapped up in a nice little bow. And guess what? That is not how it works, Hallmark. Two months after, 10 years after, and uh, it's really hard for people to kind of wrap their heads around the fact that that's not exactly how it works. So I know I would it's, say no to Hallmark too, uh, two months after. You have to, because like, right? I mean, like they would have turned my story into like a guy who moves into like the, you know, over in like the East Coast and it's going to be like apple picking season or something. And I'm going to be in like all sorts of like, flannel and you and, are and, wearing flannel right now matt i am that's true this is like my uniform <laughs> you're also you're also gonna like meet a, a nice lady in the winter time and snow's gonna be coming down and then love it for some and she's gonna own a bookstore and it's like almost gonna fail and i'm gonna help her like get her or bakery or something i'm gonna teach her like how my mom made cookies or whatever so yeah i mean that's that's what could have happened and i think that was like a, a terrifying thought for me and i also got some really good advice early on from like just some people, uh, you know, agents and things like that who were like, yeah, don't, don't do this yet. Like you, you don't need the money that badly. Right. <laughs> like they're like, if you don't, if you don't need the money to survive, then don't even think about this. And so, yeah, I, I'm glad I, I waited, but it's, it's one of those things that took forever. I mean, you know, I, I wrote this book and, and it came out in 2010 and my, my movie didn't come out till last year. So we're talking, you know, that's, that's a long time. That's 11 years. And, um, and it was never a goal of mine. I never wanted this to happen. I never thought it would happen. It's just after, after Liz died, like you just kind of trip over yourself so many times, like just to, and you just like end up in these places. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. This one was, was very interesting just where I tripped and where I landed. And it's, um, I, I'm, I'm lucky every day for it, but it, it doesn't like define 
my life you know what i mean so yeah i've watched it it's amazing it's oh yeah it does make you think to yourself like is this part true is this part true i mean obviously the you being a black man is not quite accurate yeah that that was a little that was yeah that that was um that was different and i think that was like to me one of the coolest things that actually happened you know what i mean because i think you do get these like so often you get these like hallmark versions of these movies and it's always these like you know what i mean I don't know. Like, I just feel like sometimes, and especially after, you know, you, you may not feel this way yet, but like, for me, my, my, my wife's death and like everything that happened kind of took on a whole different like world. Right. Like I had a blog that was a version of my reality. So there was like my reality. And then there was like a version of my reality. And then I wrote a book that was like still a version of my reality, but it was edited by somebody. So we've got these like concentric circles moving further out. And then eventually a movie was made. And so you get to this point where like, it's no longer your life really. It it is, it resembles my life, but it's not my life exactly. And so when I signed the contract for the movie, I was kind of like, I just like washed my hands of it. Cause I was like, this could turn out to be the worst movie of all time. Like somebody could turn this into some garbage that no one's going to ever see. And I'm going to have to have my name associated with forever. And it's going to be embarrassing. Luckily it didn't turn out that way, but my, at least in my head, again, rationalizing this, I was like, I'll just, this is not mine anymore. I've told my story. I've done my thing. I'm, I'm disassociating myself with this. And what I liked about that was that it allowed for any decisions that they made and and including like making me look completely different you know, it allowed that to be like a cool thing. And and actually what ended up happening was it, it made this uh, a conversation in the black community, which I, you know, I'm not, obviously I'm not like in a position to talk about, but in talking to Kevin, as he prepared for this role, he wanted to show like himself in this role as a strong black father. You know, we talked about this earlier, just about like the assumptions people have about dads in general, but I think it's worse for black men and black dads. And there's not a lot of expectations about them being great dads all the time, at least not depicted in Hollywood, right? Those are not the stories that are told by Hollywood. And so when he read the screenplay about my, you know, that was based on my book, he thought that was a great opportunity to, to kind of like change that, that scenario a little bit and give people an idea that like, I mean, in real life, he's a great dad. He's got like four kids and he's just like very present in their life. When he goes on set, to film wherever it is in the world, he brings his kids along and he literally puts them to work. Like he makes them do like, you know, just the crappy jobs that people have to do on set. And it's awesome. And he really is an engaged father. And I think this was a neat opportunity for him to be able to like, you know, kind of show that as like a character trait of people who don't get portrayed that way. And in a way, I like absolutely think that's like the best legacy of like this thing, like this thing that's gotten so far out of my hands and so out of my control to have it take on a different life like that is so cool. You know what I mean? And um, and it was so cool. Like the Obamas saw this. uh, They saw an early cut of the movie and they wanted to become producing partners on it. So they they put their. Yeah. So their production company is part of the producing team on my movie, which is so amazing. And then I just found out I got a friend who lives in D.C. and he wrote me and he said, hey, I found out they're playing your movie in D.C. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, where is it? He sends me the details and it's at the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial. And it's part of a film series about like, you know, sort of like strong black characters and I just like that to me, I just, it blows my mind. It, this has nothing to do with me at this point. It really, truly doesn't. But as a, as a community of widowed people, we should be proud of this thing that again, has literally, like, I don't, it's not, I don't, my name's on it. It doesn't matter, but it's so cool to think that like, this is part of a narrative that's now being shared in a positive way. And it's being shared in a community that's not always portrayed in that way. 
and I, to me that, that, I don't know, like, I, it's cool that my daughter's going to see her name in this and she's got, you know, she's, her name is in the movie. This is her in the movie. There's something about her mom. There's something about her stepmom. There's something about me, all that stuff. But on a larger scale, like, I hope this outlives all of us. And like, this is the thing that people look back at and they go, okay, this changed the way that we looked at like, you know, black widowed men, you know, I, I really hope that's the case. I don't know. That's like a grandiose thought, but like, I don't know. Somebody else thought enough of it to put this as part of a, a film festival at the MLK Memorial. I, I just love that. So that to me is such yeah. an important part of what happened here. And I like to talk about more, more about that than I do about like what it was like to be on set or whatever. You know what I mean? Cause this is just so cool. It's socially important. Yeah. Every little piece of that puzzle helps. And I also think that it's often the opposite way, you know, like people of color, BIPOC people, it's like their story gets whitewashed. Totally. So it's like, you know, let's, let's, let's take it the other direction. Fun fact, if you try and Venmo me money, the picture of me on my Venmo is me hugging Michelle Obama. Oh, that's amazing. Just so you know, in case you wanted to Venmo me some money. Uh, we can do that. Make sure everybody listening Venmo some money. <laughs> but no, I, I think that's like, that, that is so true too. And that's like another thing that I, you know, I talked about a lot was that does happen so much. Like how many times has Scarlett Johansson played like an Asian woman? Like it's like twice at least in, in two different movies. No joke. I know. Yeah. This is true. She really has. And so, you know, that does happen so often. And I feel like there's not a lot of opportunity to, to, to say like, here's a movie. Like, and I think this happens a lot in Hollywood. I live out here. So I kind of like, you know, and I, my wife's a part of it and all this stuff. But, you know, so often, you know, what you hear, like, there's black movies and there's white movies. And the goal here was just to tell a story that had, not this man's blackness as the center of it right like it's obviously it's you can't pull it apart but it wasn't that wasn't the central theme it wasn't the goal to say like this is what's happening it was just it was just showing a black man as a strong father and sometimes you don't need to beat people over the head to get them to understand like like what's happening here right and what we're trying to do is change this opinion we're trying to change this portrayal of people in hollywood and to make sure that we can do it with at the time you know and, and still one of the biggest stars in hollywood um and this was supposed to be a theatrical release um you know all around the world you know red carpets all that stuff but then pandemic got in the way and all this stuff so it was not good but the, the whole idea was that to be able to show this around the world to, to people who haven't experienced you know widowhood in that way or fatherhood in that way and i'm the fact that there's any conversation around that is like a cool thing. And so I don't know. I just, I hope that it's like the legacy of, of this movie and hopefully my life a little bit. I don't know. We'll see how it goes, but yeah. Cause fatherhood is a universal experience, no matter, you know, where you're from or it's like you were saying cavemen, even to now, Matt, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. It has been really fun to talk to you. We've learned a lot of very strange things about you, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like we can get over most of them so we can we can stay friends. We have one very important question yes. that we need to ask you before we end. Mel, do you want to ask it? Okay, prepare yourself. It's All really right, I'm hard. ready. I'm ready. What is your favorite cheese? Oh, okay. I have a really great answer for it. I can't pronounce it very well. It's called like Brillet Savarin. I'll send you the the name of it. It is it's a French <laughs> cheese. I get this all the time and it's um, it's, it looks like a brie, but it's even softer and it's like more buttery. So you pull this out of the fridge. Like if your fridge is at like, you know, 37, 38 degrees, whatever it recommends, you pull that cheese out within like a minute or two. It is like, it's just like liquid butter almost. And you slap that on some baguette and that'll be the best cheese you've ever had. I swear to you. And I, I wish I could pronounce it. My French is terrible. I haven't taken it since high school, but it's like, it's like brillet savarin or something like that. I, I'll 
you guys at the end of your podcast, when I give you the information, make sure you spell it out for everybody because I want everybody in the world to experience this cheese. It is literally, it'll change your life. I promise you. Matt had that answer in his back pocket. I know like that was, was, he was like waiting for that question. And I'll tell you why I, I did not know you guys were going to add just to be clear. Nobody prompted me that you <laughs> were going to ask this question. Off. Nobody told me this. I didn't know this, but I will tell you that like people ask me, I don't know, I guess like I, like, like I look like a guy who likes cheese or something, but like people ask me all the time, like, do you have like a favorite cheese? And I'm like, actually I do. So I am ready and I should know how to pronounce it, but I am ready at least to help you spell it out whenever I get it. I just Googled it. Now I am not a French speaker, but Duolingo sometimes. So this could be horrible. Okay. Bria Safran. There you go. That's got to be it. So yeah, spell it out maybe and have people look for it because like, I think it comes in a big wheel. My local grocery store cuts it up into wedges. Oh my God. Like this will change your life. I promise you. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you so much, Matt. We appreciate the cheese suggestions and all of the other good stuff that you've told us. Remember to come check out the Widow Wives Club to all of our listeners on Facebook. It's our private Facebook group. Answer all of the questions and don't get mad at us. We're just trying to keep the group safe. For scammers. all the scammers. Yes. And Maybe don't search for Anita's Venmo with Michelle Obama on it because now <laughs> you'll know that you're going to get hacked or Shoot. Anita will get hacked. They don't know who I am. I'm not that important. And if you want to keep the podcast going, check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash WWDN. If you'd like to buy us tacos, go to buymeacoffee.com slash widow we do now. And until we get to talk to you again, I'm Anita. I'm Mel. I'm Matt. And we are just two young widows and one Karl Marx impersonating (laughs) widower slash homemaker. And we are all just trying to figure out widow. We do now. Oh, good job. I thought I'd throw it in there. This is my favorite thing to discuss with you. Tell me, what is it? One of my favorite things. I do enjoy tacos and cheese and dogs. This is about how you cannot pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a phone plan, especially when you're a widow, your person is dead, you might have kids, you might need another option, and you just want your phone to work, you want unlimited texting and service, and you want it to be like 25 bucks a month. It blows my mind that they have plans that start at $15 a month. That is so cheap. And the cool thing is, is it uses other 5G networks. And so you don't have to pay extra for that. And you still get great service. Yep. Anita and I have traveled all over and I have used my phone. So I highly recommend it. And my mom's even on it. When my dad died, we put his phone down to the cheapest plan, which is $15 a month. And I think my mom's on the $20 a month plan and it's so worth it. It's so much cheaper than what we were all paying before. So I highly recommend it if you're on a budget or not, who cares? Ryan Reynolds is in charge of the company and they send you free stickers with Ryan Reynolds temporary tattoos. It's kind of the best. So. If somebody wants to sign up, what can they do, Anita? Go to trymintmobile.com slash WWDN. Seriously, you guys, such a great idea. Save yourself some money. And if you're worried about losing data or having any changes with your phone, not going to happen. They walk you through it. Everything's fine. It's the easiest process of all time. Again, that's trymintmobile.com slash WWDN.